I'm overwhelmed. Many people tell me that I'm overwhelmed. Now, you're sitting there thinking, oh, poor pastor. He's overwhelmed. You hear me say, I'm overwhelmed. And the likelihood is that what you've thought is something negative. Some sort of empathy comes forth from you toward me when I declare that I am overwhelmed. But I fooled you. Because I'm using the word overwhelmed this morning in a positive way. I've been through a period in my life where the privilege of preaching and studying and preparing has literally overwhelmed me with God's goodness. Literally caused me to pause and to go for long walks just to contemplate several words in a verse. So out of that overwhelmedness, if I can say that this morning, I want to share what God has given to me from his word that you too might leave this morning overwhelmed. Have the Jewish people been rejected by God doesn't sound like a question that has much relevance to you, to the Gentile world. I listened very carefully to Brother Anthony reading. About the 9,000th time I've read that passage in the last couple of months or so. And every time I read it, I hear its heaviness. Every time I read it, I think, I think of you, literally. I think of you sitting here on Sunday, looking at me, eager for a word from God. And I read those verses and I, and I think, that's a passage that many people, if they've read it all, zip right past because it doesn't say anything to me. It's a Jewish question. I'm not Jewish. doesn't really have a lot to do with my life day to day and so forth. And I've tried desperately to avoid you developing that mindset. Uh, I haven't hedged on what it says, but I have broadened the context so that we all understand that the Jewish question is a radically important question for we Gentiles. Because, as you heard read, if the Jews have not been hardened by God, you and I are nowhere. That part of the mystery of what God is doing in the world by hardening the Jews in part is preparing a way for you and me to be grafted in. So though it may not immediately meet you as you think about having to replace the plumbing in your home or how you're going to handle that troublesome spouse or where is my kid going to go to school? you probably didn't wake up and think, ooh, the Jewish question will help me rectify those problems. And yet, if you take a step back, and then another step back, and you widen that angle even more, lo and behold, that question does help you answer those questions. Because at the end of the day, if we don't know where our roots have come from, where our roots are, then let the leaves blow. Let the branches break. Let the tree fall down. 
if we don't know anything about our roots, then those storms, those winds of which we just spoke, will really own us. They'll captivate us. And now we will be able to look at nothing but our circumstances rather than the God who has ordained those circumstances to draw us away from ourselves and back to him. This question is irrelevant. That is, of course, we allow it to shape our worldview. God indeed has a plan to preserve a Jewish remnant. We've been looking at that for several weeks as part of his plan, which he is presently doing. Today, Jewish people will come to a saving knowledge of their Messiah. The veil will be lifted and they'll come in. They'll be regrafted into the natural roots of which we'll speak in just a, a moment. But at the same time, this partial hardening has taken place. Gentiles around the world will also be coming in. It won't be two separate lines. It won't be a door that says Jews only, and this door Gentiles only. It'll be one line. And over that line, we'll say the people of God. So not only are the Jews coming in and the remnant being built up, not only are the Gentiles coming in as well, this is all part of what God's plan is for you and for me. Last week we learned that there's no place, there's no place for pride, period. But there's especially no place for arrogant pride that our salvation is better than somebody else's or that our race is better than somebody else's. Our ethnicity is superior to others. If Romans 11 does anything, pardon the pun, it cuts off the root of any sort of idea of supremacy, period. No place for Gentile arrogant pride. Instead, we're to remember that the Jewish root supports us. And so, as we saw as taking communion, it leads to our dependence and our remembrance. And that's how we set up communion last week. In today's passage, Paul reveals three aspects of the character of God. Call them attributes, if you're okay with that. That's why you heard me pray some of the attributes of God. If you listen carefully to that pastoral prayer, I will often tip my hand and try to fold in some of the things that we'll be talking about in the sermon, in the prayer. Part of the reason why is that you learn how to pray by listening to other people pray. And so when I know that you're listening to me pray, I try to give you a model of prayer that's Scripture-saturated. I can't tell you the number of times in my life my prayer life has just dried up. I struggle exactly the same way. The brass heaven, the locked prayer room door, the falling asleep, the repeating of the same things. But you want to know the one thing that has never, ever dried up in my prayer life? The Word of God. When you can't pray, find a quiet spot, open the Bible, put your finger on some words, and pray them. 
you can never lose. It's the word of God. For heaven's sake. Paul reveals three aspects of the character of God and how they pertain to our being preserved to the end of days. Some of you are in this room right now wondering whether or not you've committed the unpardonable sin. Some of you in this room right now wondering whether or not you're going to shipwreck the faith. Some of you are wondering whether or not is once saved, always saved really true. Some of you are wondering whether or not you've finally blown it. Some of you might be sitting here saying, no, once saved, always saved, and you might be too smug and think that regardless of what you do, you're in. I've got a word for both of you. Or better yet, your Lord has a word for both of you. So here are, the, here are the three aspects. Two of them go together, and then there's a third. So you've already heard the, the reading, the kindness and severity of God. Those are two, two, two attributes, two aspects of his character. God is kind, but God is also severe. Those two things go together. Okay, And then the third aspect, the third attribute, if you please, is his power. So you're going to see the kindness and severity in verse 22, and then you're going to see the power in verses 23 and 24. This is why I'm overwhelmed. Anytime you start talking about the character of God, if you don't get overwhelmed, pray to God that you'd get overwhelmed. We're talking about an infinite being here. We're talking about a God who overwhelms us. And so we should when finitude faces infinity. Kindness and severity, verse 22, power, verses 23 and 24. Okay, so let's look at verse 22. Let's start there and look at how these, this kindness and severity work together. We talk a lot about context in this pulpit. I tell you all the time, the three most important things about understanding the scriptures, context, context, context. Just like the real estate broker tells you the three most important things in selling a home. Location, location, location. Context, context, context. We do this because the biblical writers talk about context. Look at verse 22 with me of uh, Romans, uh, Romans chapter 11, 22. Note then. Just those first two words. Note then. The then is going to tip us back. The then is essentially a therefore. And you know how much I love therefores. Therefores tie together the previous passage. Well, the word then is in the, in the original language is literally the same for therefore. The, the translation team put then there. They could have very easily put therefore. It would have been the exact same thing. So, so Paul opens this, this little transition piece here by saying, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Okay, what is, what is the then? What is it that he's referring to? Well, if you just read back, sometimes you only need to read the, the prior verse. It's better if you read the prior paragraph or maybe even the, re, the, the earlier part of the chapter. But if you read 1121, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you, note then the kindness and severity of God. So what Paul has done, and what I've tried to explain to you over the last couple of weeks, is that he's explaining his kindness in allowing and drawing in the Gentiles into the people of God. The severity is what comes when God hardens the people. So you've got this, you've got this dynamic that's going on that the severity of God is actually a grace that reveals his kindness. That's why you heard me pray over some of the attributes of God. All of God's attributes are shrouded, are wrapped in grace. Don't let that throw you. Don't let the idea that God is wrathful 
strike you as anything other than filled with grace. I'm going to explain that to you in just a second. Notice how Paul now transitions in our text. Note then. Note. It's not, it's not yeah, I noted that and you move on. No, no, no. It's an arresting word. It's a small word, but it's an arresting word. It, it, it's funny to watch the translations. They try to consider. Consider is another word that's used. It literally means behold. And it's an imperative. In other words, it's a command. Behold the kindness and severity of God. So if nothing else is learned today, what I would love for you to be able to do is that you walk out this door and you spend the rest of the day, the rest of the week, maybe the rest of your life, beholding the attributes of God. Particularly in this case, the kindness and severity of God. God communicating to us and saying, you will profit profoundly in your walk with the Lord if you give time to considering my kindness. Ditto for my severity, says the Lord. How can that be? Good question. Then is a context word. We looked at verse 21. Paul teaches there against arrogant pride, meaning the focus is on the self, which can separate us from God as it did with the Jewish people, as we saw in Romans 1 and 2. I won't recount it all right now. But Romans 1 and 2 is this summary of the universality of sin. Paul goes on to talk about the sinfulness of the Gentile world. In the meantime now, in those house churches in Rome, the Jews are whipping it up because Paul's letting the Gentiles have it. Paul, a little smirk on his face, says, oh, hold on a second. Because once I'm done Romans 1, the Gentiles are going to start doing their happy dance because in Romans 2, Paul starts in on the Jews and how they too are guilty. So that by the time he gets to Romans 3, he basically says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one escapes. All before a holy God stand guilty. Paul then teaches, teaches us instead to focus not on the self, but on God. That's a huge point to understand because part of where we get in trouble is that we, we focus on ourselves. We haven't been good enough. We have done this. We try to earn our righteousness. Nobody in the room is going to stand up and say, oh yeah, I believe in legalism and I believe that adherence to the law is ultimately going to save me and I can do this on my own. Nobody in this room is going to do that. But not everybody in the room will stand up and say, I fully trust in what Christ has done for me. Oh, you may say that, but you don't live like that. I have days when I don't live like that either. I feel much better about myself when I put my head on my pillow at night when I've had a pretty clean day. As though that gave me one up for the, on the Lord. That's exactly part of what we're getting after right here this morning. Note then the kindness and severity of God. The NIV says the sternness of God. Gulp. <laughs> not, a, not a popular subject today. Not many people come to a church where they hear sermons on the sternness of God. No, no, no. My God is a God of love. My God is not judgmental. Judgmental. 
Paul says, God says through Paul, behold, literally, look at it, rotate it around, behold it, like like the five-carat engagement diamond. Behold, the woman can't take her eyes off it. The hand leads her wherever she goes. Behold. Behold the kindness. Five carats here. Behold the severity. Five carats here. This is what we're being commanded to do. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Here he brings these two aspects of God's character together. Severity toward those who have fallen. Now he's going to break it out in this one verse. Behold these two things. And let me, now Paul says, let me show you what I'm talking about here. So he reverses them. Behold the kindness and severity of God. But now he's going to start with the severity. Severity toward those who have fallen. Or rightly, as another English translation says, who have disobeyed. Because some of you are, in this room are hardwired when you hear the word fallen. You immediately think, I can fall away from the faith. That's what's happening here in Rome. Somebody's fallen away. A real Christian has fallen away from the faith. That's not what's happening right here. The core, the root, if you please, of this word is disobedience. It's active walking in disobedience, or as he's going to use the word in just a minute here, unbelief. We're talking about continuing in unbelief. And this is an often ignored aspect of God's character. One of the reasons why I preach the way that I do. I'm not a thematic preacher. You want thematic preacher? You you pretty much can go anywhere else because that's the mode of preaching that's going on. And I'm, I'm not casting aspersions. It's not bad. It should not be the steady diet. Why? because you don't fully understand the storyline of the Scripture. And if you don't understand that storyline and how you fit into it, then all you're going to do is chase around these self-help kinds of things that are going to make you feel less angry this week, that are going to make you a little bit more kind toward your spouse, but at the end of the day, is not going to transform you into the image of Jesus. And preaching this way brings me to hard texts. You need hard texts. Every word in this book has been given to us by the ordination of God, which means every word in this book has meaning for me. I don't get to cut out Ezekiel because of all the funky things that are going on there. I don't get to cut out Revelation because it just blows my mind. I love Jesus and his parables, and I love Ephesians, and I love the Psalms. You can have the rest. No. What does that get you? First, what it gets you is you having authority over the word. You don't get to dictate. I don't get to dictate. This is God's revelation. I need every word of it to understand him, because at the end of the day, there's no greater call in my life than to know the Lord my God. So to talk about the severity of God is something that's often ignored. Pastor, I get beat up all week. The last thing I need is to hear you talk about the wrath of God. Live with my husband, and I'll tell you about the wrath of God. 
go to my boss and I'll talk to you about the severity of God. God wants us to take him seriously. God wants us to fear him. That's biblical language. I'm going to come hard right behind this because for some of you who were raised under a parent who did nothing but create fear in your soul, this doesn't translate well. I get it. But we're talking a loving, perfectly holy, heavenly father here. Not an earthly father who may or may not have tried to do his best. Christians are commanded to continue in God's kindness, not in unbelief. This is one of the points that we're going to get here. Where are we continuing? To continue in unbelief. Now watch me now. To continue in unbelief is to invite God's severity. That's the clear logic that Paul's making here. If you continue in unbelief, then you should expect the severity of God. If you continue in God's kindness, his severity is no longer in play in the sense that it is if you're walking in disobedience. Stay with me, please. To continue in unbelief is to invite God's severity, his judgment, his wrath. Does, does, did not Paul say this in Romans 1.18? He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you are apart from Christ, and Paul's going to say this also in the book of Ephesians, if you are apart from Christ, God's wrath rests on you now. And the fact that it doesn't disintegrate you is grace. So his severity is marked by grace. Why? Because its goal is to bring you home. Any good parent who exercises healthy discipline usually doesn't get any joy out of it. But why do they do that? They do that because they don't want their child going wayward. How much more so a perfectly loving heavenly father who thunderclaps, who warns, because he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the prophet. So when God comes with the thunder, you don't curse him, you don't run and hide, you fall on your face like Luther literally did and say, I repent. Whatever needs, whatever needs to be done, I'm yours. That's the end goal. That's why Christ went to Calvary's cross. To be warned is a grace of God. You've heard the illustration a thousand and one times. You're in the front room of your home, and the back end of your home is blazing with fire. A neighbor walks by, sees the fire. That neighbor is unloving if that neighbor keeps walking. The neighbor is loving even if she has to go and knock down your front door to get your attention. You might get initially upset thinking, what did you just do to my house? And then you smell smoke. And now all of a sudden, that door that's been knocked off its hinges doesn't seem to matter much anymore. 
To be warned is a grace of God. That's why Paul says, behold, the severity of God. So for those of you who are in Christ and assured that you're walking in the obedience of faith, you can still behold the severity of God and give God thanks that he has rescued you from that. Because one day his son's going to return to bring salvation, not wrath, to those who are in Christ. I asked the Wednesday night Bible study, one, as we closed our time together, what, can you tell me one thing that you're thankful for? And one attendee, without hesitation, I thank God every single day for my salvation. And I thought, there's a person who gets it. Thank God today. Thank God tonight before you go to bed that you have been rescued, not just from sin and death, but from his wrath as well. But God's kindness to you, the Gentiles, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. You see, you and I must continue That's the simple point. Every single one of us in this room right now is continuing. The question is, continuing in what? Are you continuing in unbelief? Or are you continuing in the kindness of God? Romans 2.4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I went on and on when we were back in Romans 2. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. I can preach hellfire and brimstone all day long. and, And some people might repent under the thoughts of having to face that. That's not an altogether bad thing, and there are examples of that in the Scriptures. But over and over and over again, people come because they see the, they see the kindness of the Savior. That's what Romans 2.4 says. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. When you see the kindness that He expresses and the price that He's paid, you can't do anything except celebrate and give your life to Him. That's what Paul is saying. If you continue in unbelief, expect the consequences. However, if you're continuing in his kindness, all of the ground is sinking sand. So, so, here's the, so the question, the question is, does Paul in fact teach that you can lose your salvation? It, otherwise, he says, you'll be cut off. Let me give you the answer to that question. No. Paul is not teaching that. I don't don't have time to do the whole sermon series here right now, but let me refer you, because I want to stay in context, I want to stay in the book of Romans. Let me refer you to what Paul has already said in Romans chapter 8. He has said these words. For those, 829, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, verse 30, 830, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification is not final until glory. Paul's speaking of it as a present reality for those whose lives are hidden with God In Christ Jesus. Oh, but he's not done. Verses that we all love, 835 and following. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? 37. No, all these things more, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure death nor life, angels, rulers, present things to come, powers, height, depth. He's running out of things. Nor anything else in all creation. Now watch this. Including you. 
That's a, that's a significant point because I, I have books in my shelves that read this and say, notice the one thing that Paul didn't say is that I can walk away. Good heavens. If you want to hold on to that bare thread, more power to you. Paul has just emptied out his thesaurus to let us know that there's absolutely nothing, including all of creation of which I am a part, mind you, can separate us from the love of Christ. When he has you, he has you. You are as safe as you possibly could be. No, true believers cannot lose their salvation. Nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can. If you want another thing, I mean, I can, we can go on. I'm going to give you one more before we transition here and wind things down. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, I know I'm doing a little cherry picking here right now, and there are other verses that can be brought up, but for now, in the time that I have, John 6, 37, Jesus himself All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And again, you might say, yeah, you won't cast me out, but I might cast me out. That warrants further conversation. I don't have the time to do that right now. The word of God is clear that true Christians, hear this, church, true Christians are preserved by God and therefore will persevere. It doesn't mean you won't fall away. It doesn't mean you won't have seasons of backsliding. It doesn't mean that you're perfect and that you won't have sin. That's not what these verses are teaching. What it does mean is that if you are genuinely regenerated, converted, born again, you are eternally secure. If you fall away, it simply shows that you were never in. You say, Pastor, that sounds a little bit like works righteousness to me. Well, I'm going to give you some words and you, you, you tell me. Saving faith is persevering faith. If you sit here today, having made a confession of sin to the Lord, and you desire to this day to continue to please him, be assured, be assured that you're going in the right direction. I love what one writer has said. If you could fall away, you would have. It's a very simple but hugely pregnant statement. If you could fall away, you would have. Why would you have not? Matthew 10, 22, Jesus' words. Jesus, the only one, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus said that. Hebrews 3, 6, and 14. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Hebrews 3, 14. We share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Is there a work for me to do? Oh yeah, there's work for you to do. Is it a salvific, justifying work? Absolutely not. You hear me say horse and cart all the time. The horse, don't mean any disrespect, is what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's entirely his work. We add nothing to our justification. It's all of God. 
The cart, however, involves us and our work. So yes, one of the works that a truly regenerate Christian has is to persevere. So those of you who are my age and older, there's no such thing as biblical retirement. You can't retire from the Christian faith. To cruise is to be in trouble. Let me say it. Let me say it carefully. To cruise, to not have to read your Bible anymore because you've read it three or four times over the course of your life, to not be involved in the life of the body anymore, to not be exercising the gifts that God has given to you with the community is dangerous ground. The truly regenerate believer will persevere will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You and I can have great assurance, faith-strengthening assurance, as we continue in God's kindness. But, here's, here's the other fork in the road, but if we continue in unbelief, then be fearful, be afraid, for we too will be cut off, showing ourselves never to have been in the true faith. So if you're cruising or you don't think that you've got to deal in a, in a serious way with your sin, be warned. And warnings are gracious. One writer wrote this beautiful paragraph commenting on whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For those united to him, the heart of Jesus is not a rental. It is your new permanent residence. You are not a tenant. You are a child. His heart is not a ticking time bomb. I love that. His heart is not a ticking time bomb. His heart is the green pastures and still waters of endless reassurances of his presence and comfort. Whatever our present spiritual accomplishments, it is who he is, the attributes of God. We close by looking at God's power. So cut off is not God's final word. Cut off is not God's final word. We know that because the Lord is already grafting back in Jewish people. So to say they were cut off does not mean that they were cut off permanently, unless what? Unless they continue in what? Unbelief. If you no longer continue in unbelief and instead continue in the kindness of God, then you're no longer cut off. Cut off is never God's last word, for God has power to restore. Even they, verse 23, the Jewish people, if they do not continue, see? If they do not continue in their unbelief in Jesus Christ, that's the point. Oh, the Jews believe. The Muslims believe. Buddhists believe. Oprah believes. But do they believe savingly in Jesus Christ, God's only son? 
If they do not continue in their unbelief of their Messiah, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. God alone has the power to take those who have been in rebellion against him and to bring them back home. This is the reality, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Their minds, speaking of the Jews, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 2 Corinthians 3.15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, oh, I love the buts. 2 Corinthians 3.16. But... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's the current situation, not only of Jews, but also of unbelieving Gentiles. Our dear sister Wendy, you all know Wendy. A couple weeks ago, she gave me a great big shout out. And she said, Romans 11.23, Romans 11.23. She says, that's me, that's me. I'm a Jew. Grafted back in. And I promised her that when I got to this passage, I would use her as an illustration. But I know Norman Axelrod is also sitting at home right now, and he's going, me too, me too, me too. In our own midst, we have two, two remnant members who were of the Jewish religion, if you please, but have now been grafted back in. Why? Because they stopped unbelief, and trusted in the kindness of God. This is God's restorative power on display, the Jewish people being grafted back in by the power of the gospel. Christ Jesus, Calvary's cross, the empty tomb. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is power. to do this. He continues to humble the Gentiles. He'll have none of it. If God has the power to graft you and me who are contrary to nature, how much more will these, the natural branches, the Jewish people, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He said, if I can, if I can bring you in, how much more readily will the natural branches come back in when they no longer continue in unbelief? I'm overwhelmed. And so should we all be, in a good way. We've beheld, we've beheld three of God's attributes that are at work in the world, in our lives, for his glory, and for our salvation. I told you these difficult passages have something to say to you today. Let us then go on to notice, to consider, to behold. Let this lead to thanksgiving. Let this lead to worship. Let us behold his kindness that leads to repentance. Let us behold his severity that graciously encourages us to continue in his kindness. Let us behold his power that keeps us 
in his son until he returns. I leave you with these words. This is from another writer speaking about our eternal assurance. True believers cling to Christ and his righteousness until the day of redemption. They look away from themselves and what they have accomplished, and they put their hope in Christ, crucified and risen. Those who persevere are not perfect, but they never turn away from Jesus Christ. They never forsake him as the fountain of living waters. They do not put their trust in their own works, but in the atonement secured by Jesus Christ alone. Perseverance, then, does not lead to pride, does not lead to pride, but to humility. For it is nothing other than clinging to Christ and his righteousness. We show our trust by obeying, for there's no other way to receive the prize on that last day. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father God, we thank you for your attributes. We thank you that you inspired the great apostle for for these few verses to make sure we understood salvation and its long-rooted plan in your character. It is of you, Father, and we want to give you thanks in this moment. We want to praise your glorious name We want to thank you for your kindness. Oh, your kindness. We want to thank you for your severity, God. And we want to thank you for your power that has lifted us out of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Oh, Father, would you encourage each and every one of us in this room as we go forth from this place today to do exactly what we're commanded to do in this verse, to note, to consider, to behold the kindness of severity, and power of our great God. Praying these things in the name of his Son. Amen. Amen. Amen.